Acts chapter 13. We're going to begin reading here in a moment in verse 13. So Acts 13, 13. Back in uh, 1856, Charles Spurgeon was really at the beginning peak of popularity in his preaching ministry in London. And they were outgrowing every space in which he preached. And so on October 19th of 1856, they rented a place called the Surrey Garden Music Hall so that it could seat the 12,000 people that wanted to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. And there were tens of thousands of people outside the space as well. And as he was praying before he preached, somebody or multiple people in a coordinated move shouted, fire, the galleries are giving way and the place is falling down. And so you've got 12,000 people crammed in a space and there was no fire and seven people uh, were trampled to death and 28 were hospitalized with numerous serious injuries. And Spurgeon in that moment was so completely devastated that he could not walk and lay in a kind of shock at the base of the pulpit and had to be carried to a friend's house. And at the time, he thought that was it. He thought that was the end of his ministry. And he could not believe that he had enemies that were capable of such terrible things. And he, and he felt terribly responsible in some way that probably doesn't make a lot of actual sense. That he couldn't calm the crowd down and instill order in the people. And so he thought this is very possibly the end. He, he said, even the sight of the Bible brought me a flood of tears and utter distraction of mind. And then, of course, came, he, Spurgeon had many enemies in the city, especially in the well-to-do culture. And the reporters wrote things like, Mr. Spurgeon is a preacher who hurls damnation at the heads of his sinful hearers and is a ranting charlatan and sort of said like he deserved what he got. Look at this egomaniac packing this number of people into a space. Look at this charlatan. Like, he deserved what he got. Well, two weeks later, he returned to the pulpit in a daze, and I found this sermon merely by accident this week. I had no idea of the historical relevance of the message that I stumbled onto, but this is, two weeks later, he, he, he comes back into the pulpit, and he says this, I almost regret this morning that I have ventured to occupy this pulpit because I feel utterly unable to preach to you for your profit. And then he kind of essentially says, probably not going to be able to preach. But I want to read this passage, this text, and just share with you some of the comfort I've received from this text. He says, the text I have selected is one that has comforted me and in a great measure enabled me to come here today. The single reflection upon it had such a power of comfort on my depressed spirit. So I'll tell you what the text was that he chose to preach on at the end of the message. But, but I thought about all of that as I read our text in Acts 13, beginning in verse 13. It says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and sailed to, or came to Persia in Pamphylia, and John left and returned to Jerusalem. But they went from Perga 
and came to Antioch and Pisidia. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them. So Paul and Barnabas are sitting in a church service. And those that are in charge of the service, after reading from the law and the prophets, send them a note. Probably not a note, probably verbally. And the message was this. Brothers, you guys, we know you're somebody. You're not from around here. Um, If you have any message, any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Can you imagine visiting a church? Some of you are visiting today. Let's try it. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Your pulse just went... Uh, Sitting in a synagogue as a guest, and providentially through... Through, through the Lord's sovereign act, which we'll discuss at length today, the elders of that particular synagogue sent a message to Paul saying, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said what we will read in a moment. It, the connection between these two ideas of Spurgeon kind of limping up to the pulpit in a daze, and Paul approaching the people in that synagogue may not be completely obvious, but let me just draw the conclusion I saw, or the connection I saw, and that is what Spurgeon only had one thing he could say. He had one word of encouragement. This, 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 there's a book called Good to Great. It's a leadership book. A lot of people have read it. I don't know how many of you have read it. A number of you are leaders. I imagine some of you have read it. But there's, there's a principle in the book called Good to Great called the Hedgehog Concept. And it's this idea of just knowing one thing so deeply and so well that it becomes the the, the one bit of information that becomes the default of how you behave, of what you do in a difficult situation or even in a a good situation. Spurgeon's hedgehog concept is the thing we see from Paul. So the question is, is sort of, I guess I could say it this way. What is your word of encouragement to this world that so obviously needs encouragement. Uh, What is your word of encouragement to yourself? What is your word of encouragement to yourself? What is the thing that can and should encourage you? So the question becomes, and the first point of the the message this morning is, is is the word of encouragement that God is sovereign? Is Is that the answer? is the word of encouragement that God is sovereign. This is an expansive text for me to cover. There's a lot going on. But in the first section, beginning in you know, verse 17 or so, Paul begins to go through the history of Israel. Let me, let me just read verse 17 through 22 to you. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it, And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him... He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, 
the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So, very evidently, in this section of Scripture, Paul is making a big deal of God's sovereign work in history. Now, the first time you read this, you might just be thinking, well, Paul's listing a bunch of historical events in the life of Israel, and miss the way he chooses to present those historical events. And so let me just go back through them, not not in any kind of uh, degree of specificity, but simply to say that every single time Paul talks about an event, he makes the point that God caused the event to occur. So we say around here, for those of you who are visiting who won't be asked to speak today, you know that God is an author, except that he writes in the ink of reality. God is telling a story to the world, and he's telling that story through his sovereign control over every single detail which occurs in the world. God has been writing a story with the actual events of actual life, and he's even doing that right now in this room and every other place in both big ways and small ways, he is completely over in control of every single thing. And so Paul makes that point. He makes that point. He says, he says in verse 17, it is God who chose Israel from all the people. Also in 17, he says God made them great during their stay in Egypt. Also in 17, he says God led them out of Egypt. In verse 18, God bore with Israel in the wilderness. In verse 19, it was God who destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan. Also in verse 19, it was God who gave Israel the land of Canaan as an inheritance. Also in verse 20, it was God who gave them judges. In verse 21, it was God that gave them their first king. In verse 22, it was God who removed Saul and gave them David. In verse 22 again, it is God who raises up David, a young nobody who was good with a slingshot and could write songs to be the second king of Israel. And so I just went through 10, 10 of 16 examples in this section of scripture that describe God's sovereign acting in history over the course of hundreds of years. And I think it's really helpful to think about this. I almost preached on this. And that is, God is the author of all things who writes in the ink of reality and most of the chapters last hundreds of years. There's a, there's a moment in the text where, where Paul says, after 450 years, like, you know. And, and one of the really interesting things that I was tempted to talk about more than I will this morning is just that the truth is, is in order to really establish any real grip on what is happening in, in the universe you need to look well before and beyond your lifetime. And, and to the extent that you're like cursed with some kind of chronological snobbery, that's what C.S. Lewis called it, because he had it, and he had to repent of it. Uh, chronological snobbery meaning people were really dumb up until a couple hundred years ago, and then we started being really smart. Uh, the sense of the urgent, the now, the modern, being superior to the ancient, to the extent that you're cursed with that perspective, it's just really difficult to make sense out of the world. But once you start thinking in terms of chapters that take 450 years or, or longer, perhaps, well, things start to make a little bit more sense. Sometimes we are missing uh, the Jesus forest for the circumstantial trees, and sometimes we're missing the meta story for the micro, right? So learning to think in meta narrative is really good, but that's the sermon I was going to preach. I've got to stop talking about it or I'm going to preach that sermon. 
So the, the question is, though, and, th- and I, I pulled these 10 instances from a, a sermon that John Piper preached in 1991 on this text, and he actually listed 16. Uh, I've abbreviated that for your sake. Uh, the question is, is what's the, what's the message of encouragement you have to share with the world? Or what's the message of encouragement you have to share with yourself? Or what's the message you, of encouragement you have to share with someone when they get cancer, or so on and so forth. What's the message of encouragement? And I asked, the first point was a question, and that is, is it God's sovereignty? Is that the message of encouragement? And point two is, no. The sovereignty of God cannot be our most encouraging word. Look at verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers... Because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So God's story, one of the, one of the phrases you can lock into here, is that they did not understand. Those that killed Jesus did not understand. And the idea here is is that God's story, the story he's writing in the ink of reality, is written in such a way as for these people, they should have been able to understand. And many did. They should have not missed that Jesus was God. In fact, they should have seen that Jesus was God. And the fact that they missed it, now this is key. This is super key. These folks understood the sovereignty of God. It was not the sovereignty of God that was their problem. It was not believing in the sovereignty of God that was their problem. They missed Jesus, and it's not because they didn't know that God controls all things. Okay, A high view of God's sovereignty is indeed glorious, And last week when we had our guest preacher, he praised our name Providence, and I kind of quietly made a a fist pump, and uh, Nick Gimity caught me doing it and laughed at me. But but you love the name, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about God's sovereignty, God's action in all things. That's That's what we mean by Providence. And that's a beautiful theological truth, and it's so important. But then again, those who delivered up Jesus had the same theology we do concerning the sovereignty of God. And they missed Jesus. So here's here's how I would summarize it. It's one thing to acknowledge God's sovereign control over all things. The demons do that and tremble. It's another thing to recognize what God does or is doing with his sovereignty. To put it another way, it's one thing to say, God writes in the ink of reality. God is telling this, this, this millennial, millennium-long story, uh, multi-millennium-long story, the chapters of which are 400 years or whatever. I'm not, that's not a specific number, by the way. That's Any number I say, don't ever trust it. Dates, so on. Verses, don't, I'm terrible with numbers. Uh, but, but, but it's one thing to say, God's writing this story in the ink of reality. He's, he's telling a story. That's, that's acknowledging his sovereign authorship. That's acknowledging his sovereign control over all things. But here's, here's it's, it's one thing to see that. 
but it's another to actually know the story he's telling. And that's where these people who crucified Jesus didn't get to. They, they understood that God was telling a story. They just misinterpreted the story God was telling. So what is the most encouraging word you have to share? It, it, it really can't just be that God is sovereign over all things. Now, this is going to be fun for me. I, don't, I, can't, I can't overexpress the amount of, of the debt of gratitude I owe to John Piper. Uh, I came across him when I was 18 years old and just basically just fed on John Piper stuff for six years or something. Hugely influential. But a moment ago I said that I, I, uh, I, I, I found these 16 evidences of God's sovereign work in history in a John Piper sermon that he preached in 1991. Listen to his main application point from that sermon. If you want to be a Christian... It means believing that God is the main actor in world events, that he is the most important factor in all matters. And I would say, that's not right. That's not right. That's not what it means to be a Christian. The people who killed Jesus believed that. And what's interesting is, so that's 1991. In 2005, 24 years after preaching Acts, we have to be patient with our teachers. Be patient with our preachers. Uh, in 2005, 24 years after preaching what I just read on Acts 13, he says this. Jonathan Edwards has not only re remained one of my primary inspirations, but he has also brought increasing clarity and focus to some things that were less clear to me in my early days, things that are essential for good preaching. And what became clear to me as my ministry matured is the utter indispensability of highlighting Jesus Christ, the God-man, as essential to the way God makes himself the grand design of creation. You see the development? In 1991, John Piper said, God writes the story with sovereign control, and that's, the, that's what you must believe to be a Christian. In 2005, he says, let's talk about the story he was telling. Not just that God's the author, but the story that God is telling. And the, the growth that occurs from, by the way, I looked it up. He was 45 when he preached uh, Acts 13, 1991. He's 70 now. The growth that occurred in those 25 years was the growth that must occur for all of us. And that is this. It is wonderful to say, to acknowledge God's control, his sovereign control over all things. But what is he doing with it? What is he doing with that control? One of the things that John Piper did for me when I was a young man was he, he blew my mind by showing me all of these passages in the, in the Old Testament where God says explicitly that I will act for the sake of my name. Some of you read like Desiring God around the same time I did, and I bet you you were like, whoa, I didn't know there were this many verses in which God decreed, I'm doing all things for the sake of my name. Let me just read you three verses all from the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel. They're all in chapter 20. But I acted, this is God speaking, for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I have made myself known to them. Verse 14, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. 
Verse 22, but I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name. Which name, though? I think we have an answer to that question. And I think the answer to that question is in Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus Christ. That's the name whom God is acting to exalt in all things. And that's, that's the next step beyond acknowledging that God's writing the story to saying, well, what story is he telling? And, and the story he's telling is, is that Jesus is great. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is unparalleled. He is the center of all things. As Jonathan Edwards put it, the one grand medium by which God glorifies himself in all is Jesus Christ. So, what is your encouraging message? What is your encouraging word? Is it that God is sovereign? No, that's not enough. I mean, you start the sentence that way, but you just can't put a period at the end of that statement. Now, there needs to be some other, there needs to be a hyphen or a semicolon or a comma or something. Because, yeah, God's sovereign and he's writing this story. But what does the story all mean? Like, what does all of this actually mean? What is the point of the story that God is expertly writing in sovereign skill? And the point of the story might be summarized as this. Here's what I think the most encouraging thing you can say to anybody is. You are not the star of the story. You are not the star of the story. You are a supporting character in the novel that God is writing meant to make the hero of the story look good. And there are basically two ways. All the characters make the hero look good in one of two ways. Either, be by, res either by being rescued by him or being killed by him. That's the basic story God is telling. You are, I am, a supporting character in a story that God is writing in sovereign skill, in the ink of reality, we are supporting characters meant to make the one main character, Jesus Christ, look good. And some of us here will, be make, will make Jesus look good by being rescued from our sin and being brought into the wedding feast of the Lamb, and being, and being blessed with the lavish goodness, our undeserved goodness of Jesus Christ. And others of us in this room may tragically make Jesus look good by rebelling against Him to the end, and then suffering for all time as an exhibit of Christ's worthiness and the great offense that sin casts against reject, by rejecting Him. So I think, I really do think, as, as, as non-intuitive as it would be in an Insta-TikTok environment, I really do think the most encouraging message you can bring to an extraordinarily discouraged world is this. You are not the star of the story. Now, that shows up in our text. Because in our text, we have people that are not that we are not equal to they are our superiors in every way 
Abraham is in this story. Moses, John the Baptist, David. And they, guys, they are mere supporting characters in the story that God is telling. You see, uh, this is incredibly this is incredibly freeing. If you, if you look through the story, you see suffering, right? And you see injustice, and you see setbacks, and you see bad decisions, and you see sin, but you also see successes. And what's incredible about this passage is, is it's just very clear, all of that stuff is stuff that God has allowed to enter our lives in order to make Christ look good. But let's just take two characters in the story that Paul seems to elaborate on. And the first one let's look at is John the Baptist. You're going to find the John the Baptist reference in that text in Acts 13, 24. And this is, you may not know this. It depends on how well you know the Bible. And we, have, we, 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 we don't shame people that don't know the Bible very well. I try to do my best to explain like, where I get things and so on. But in Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says this, which I don't, this statement, which I don't think is hyperbole. He says, among those born of women, so another way of saying, of all the people ever born, no one has arisen, no man, no woman has arisen greater than John the Baptist. So it's important as we think about John the Baptist here for a second, it's important to to note that this is what Jesus thinks. Jesus thinks that John the Baptist is the greatest human who was ever born in the traditional sense of that word. Now, why did Jesus think John the Baptist is the greatest? Well, my Baptist friends would say, it's because he's Baptist. <laughs> it's like, duh, you know. It's like, it's not John the Presbyterian, you know. Uh, but but why, why, why was Jesus able to make that declaration this is important because deep down inside, you know, we, we might make, we can make peace with being a supporting character. We just want to be probably a good supporting character, right? Uh, what, why is John the Baptist the greatest? Because John the Baptist had a firmer grasp on the story that God was telling than any other human being who ever lived. He was directly adjacent. He, he was a glad, joyful zealous embracer of his role as a supporting character in God's story. Look at Acts 13, verse 24. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Listen to verse 25. And as John was finishing his course, his character is about to not occupy any more of the novel, right? He'll, He'll get a few references in Acts. But... He's, he's finishing his course. John the Baptist is killed, beheaded by Herod. As John was finishing his course, he says, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. I am not the hero. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So my suggestion as to why Jesus thought John the Baptist was the greatest is because John the Baptist had, through circumstances and spirit, an extraordinarily unique capacity to understand his supporting role in the story of God. John the Baptist was great because he knew 
that his part in God's story was to point to the hero of God's story. Listen to what John the Baptist says in John 3, verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. You want to be great? Just be excited when Jesus makes much of himself. Be like the best man at Jesus' wedding. And just be like, this is so much not about me. This is about him. You want to be great? That's, that's the key right there. That's, that's, that's the most encouraging thing you could ever tell anybody. You're actually telling them, here, this is how you find success as a human being. This is how all the puzzle pieces click. This is how it all winds up making sense. It won't make sense as long as you keep living like you're supposed to be the hero. But man, if you just stepped one step over, you know, like instead of right here in the wedding to like right here in the wedding, boom, like suddenly reality clicks. It's like, oh, I'm supposed to use a fork to eat steak, not a spoon. Like it's just this boom, like, like the most obvious thing ever happens when you take one step over and you say, he is the hero. And I'm the supporting character. And, and you know, some of you know these words. This is beautiful. How does, how does John the Baptist summarize his whole theology and his whole understanding of God's story? Well, here's a verse you should memorize. John 3.30. He must increase. I must decrease. That's the most encouraging thing you can give anybody. Because trying to live as the hero of your own story when you were never built to do that is exhausting, depressing. It's anxiety-inducing. It's disappointing. And there's another piece of this too. Here's a beautiful thing. like When you stop expecting your spouse to be your hero or your pastor to be your hero or your parents to be your hero, they can just be people. And you can love them instead of feeling constantly disappointed at them. Once Jesus becomes your hero, it really is this magical moment where you just get the keys to like understanding everything. So uh, let me go a little deeper. Why is you are not the star of your story? By the way, that's, that's the hard way of saying it. I think that's, you could say you are not the star of your story, Jesus is, something like that. But, but, but my fourth point is why is you are not the star of your story, the most encouraging word. Well, I've got three, three things I see in the text here. The first one is, is the truth, this truth identifies the deepest purpose for our lives. Look at verse 21. Now let's talk about David, who's another supporting character in this story. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, I mean, Saul was all, like Saul did not get this, did he? He did not get this principle. He's like the the opposite John the Baptist in a way. He's the opposite Paul, right? It's a Saul Paul kind of comparison. Saul is cast aside, as he just he just has to be the hero of his own story, and he'll lie, he'll 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 murder, he'll do whatever he needs to to stay the star of his own story. He's removed, verse twenty two. And when he, God, had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, 
who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. If you're looking for one character besides John the Baptist in the whole Bible that gives this sidekick vibe, it'd be David. David is so obviously a a forerunner of Christ. He's so obviously someone meant to introduce categories about Christ without giving those categories complete, perfect resolution. He's the Jesus you wish was Jesus, and then he turns out not to be the Jesus you wished was Jesus. He's just good enough to make you want it. Look at verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So I'm asking, why is you're not the star of your own story the most encouraging thing? And one of them is is because it identifies the deep purpose in our lives. Now look again at that verse in 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. I have something super encouraging to share with you today. Your point of existing is to point people to Jesus and then die. I love that phrase. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation. That's a, that's a sweet phrase. You could replace David's name with your own. You could point to Christ, say, my, I, my purpose is to, is to do the thing God wants me to, to advance the story of Jesus in the world, and then die. You can replace David's name with anything you have in your life. After my health has served its purpose of pointing people to Christ, I won't have it anymore. It'll be done. After my wealth has served its purpose in pointing people to Christ, good enough. After my sexuality has served its purpose in pointing people to Christ, after my singleness has served its purpose in pointing people to Christ, after my marriage has served its purpose in pointing people to Christ, it's so beautifully freeing to say there's nothing in my life. Like there's literally nothing. There's no, there's no success. There's no setback. There's no, there's no hard thing. There's no good thing. There's no easy thing. There's no talent. There's no lack of talent. There's no strength. There's no weakness. I know what every tool in this shed that God has made me to be, you know, I know what every tool is for. It's to make much of Jesus. Light clicks on. Suddenly, I know the purpose of my life. Number two, the second reason why it's good news to tell people this, why it's encouraging, is that this truth identifies the problem which causes us the most pain. It identifies where you are going wrong. So the world is built on certain deep rules, and you can't disobey them. You know, gravity is this deep rule, and at least right now, we haven't figured out a long-term a sustainable exemption from that rule. And if you try to break that rule, you don't break the rule. The rule breaks you. And there are all sorts of rules in the world like this. Sexuality is one of these rules. Like You can try to break the rules of sexuality. They'll just break you. Uh, there, there are all sorts of things like this. The deepest one of these deep rules that you can't break but will break you is the, is the Jesus rule. God is telling the story. Jesus is going to be the hero. He is the point. 
And if you try to break that rule, all you'll do is break yourself against that rule. And so if you've got some area of pain in your life, you might want to examine, not, not necessarily that it's self-inflicted, but it could be. You could simply be experiencing consequences of breaking this rule. You're trying to make something serve some other purpose that was only meant to serve Jesus. Years ago, my wife and I worked for a company that helped people navigate their long-term disabilities and their diseases and so forth. This was when we were planting a church in St. Louis. And both of us would talk with hundreds of very ill or disabled people every week. And the saddest cases of those were the people who had uh, no diagnosis. They're just suffering. They're just like really suffering and no one can tell them why. No one can actually just tell them, this is what's wrong with you. And it's not even, these people were so far down that road. It's not even that they really like wanted, like, it's not even that they said, man, if I could get a diagnosis, I could get a cure. They just wanted to be able to know why. They, they, were, they were over being cured. They just wished they had an explanation. Like, what has gone wrong in my body that has caused this thing? They were, ba- they were ready for really bad news, just needed some sense of what's wrong. Yeah, I mean, you can take this too far, what I'm about to say, but boy, first place you want to look when the check engine light of pain in your life is going on is, is what I'm talking about right now. It's usually there's some area, you know, finances, marriage, whatever, there's some area that's like blinking, and you know it's causing you pain. This would probably be the most likely reason, is you're trying to make that thing serve some other hero and there is no other hero that it can serve. Um, so, so that's the second reason why this is, this is good news. You know, sin fundamentally just means missing the mark. And I would just want to put out to you that you could have lived your whole life for you, and that would be sin, but it would be the kind of sin that you could have just entirely done without realizing that Jesus is the hero. And so now you're hearing this, and maybe there is this moment of clarity and the puzzle pieces are locking in. It's like, oh, okay, this explains a lot. Well, listen to point three. The third reason why this is good news is this truth identifies the only prescription for freedom. So verse 38 says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And we just identified sin as essentially trying to make something serve a hero that does not exist. Missing the mark, living for yourself, thinking you're the star of the story, or thinking someone else is the star of the story. Like, getting this idea of Jesus as the hero off. That's what sin is. And verse 39 says this, And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Well, if sin and I'm going to talk about this next week, if sin is fundamentally mistaking myself as the star or mistaking something else as the main point of reality, if that's what sin is, then I can't be... Think about this for a second. Think about this verse, verse 39. If the problem is I keep mistaking myself as the, the point, I can't be saved in any way that would bring glory to myself. Because what would that do if I saved myself? If I cleaned myself up? 
if I found that chunk of uh, uh, self-discipline I think I need just to fix my life. If, 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 if the way to fix the problem is me, then I've just created more problems. If I solve my own problems, then I am the star of my story, and the deep problem of me being the star of my story just got worse. And so Paul says, by him, only by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That's what he's saying there. You can't be freed from the central sin of selfishness, of self-centeredness. You can't be freed from that sin by being a good person, by, by cleaning your act up, by keeping the law. You can't be freed by those things because as soon as you keep the law and clean yourself up, you're looking at yourself and saying, well, I, I think maybe I am the star of the story. In fact, if you believe that salvation, if getting right with God, is mostly about you getting yourself together, that's a really good evidence that you think you're the star of the story. But the good news is, is that Jesus, through, through, through this marvelous plan that God has had for all of eternity, Jesus has come to save you from this central sin of self-centeredness. And he's done that through a gospel that doesn't allow you to boast. It's grace. It's just grace. You, you, you won't, you won't overcome self-centeredness any other way than to be relentlessly over and over again waterboarded with the grace of God. You know, there's this sense in which God's grace, it's so unrelenting and it's so, it's so evident and, and there. It's like, God, would you stop being so gracious to me? I really want to think this is all about me. I really want to take credit. I, I really want to fix myself. Would you stop being so full of grace? God's like, nope, this is, this is I'm going to transform everything by giving you a salvation upon which you cannot possibly boast. And so that's the good news. That's the blessing you can tell the world. That's the word of encouragement you can tell yourself. You can tell someone who's suffering. You can tell a sad world is, you're not the star. But we know who, who the star is now. And he makes it possible for you to have a change of heart in which you actively, you actively think, as long as he's doing well, as long as his name is praised, as long as Jesus is being exalted, well, that's good. So what was the text that Spurgeon walked, limped into the pulpit with two weeks after he couldn't even walk out of depression? Remember he says this, I read it to you before, but let's read it again. He says, this text I've selected is the one that comforted me and in a great measure enabled me to come here today. What was the text? Philippians 2.9 Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he, Spurgeon's so annoying. He, he says, I'm not going to be able to preach today. And then you read like four pages into the sermons, like your not preaching is better than my best preaching. And 
But you follow along in his message and really is struggling to begin with. And as he moves from explaining himself to explaining this glorious, as he moves from thinking about himself to thinking about this glorious promise that God is sovereign over all things. He is writing a story in the ink of reality and the star of that story is Jesus Christ and not me. You can feel as he's working his way into that glorious truth, a marvelous healing fall upon him. Didn't make everything better. Like this, He struggled with this the rest of his life. But there's a, there's a, a section in that sermon where suddenly you hear, you can almost imagine this, this weak, you know how someone speaks when they're depressed? Like this weak, thin, clinging on vocalization. You can almost hear the manliness coming back into his voice. The authority and confidence coming back in his voice when he says this. In the midst of calamities, whether they be the wreck of nations, the crash of empires, the heaving of revolutions, or the scourge of war, the great question which he, the Christian, asks himself and asks of others too is this. Is Christ's kingdom safe? In his own personal afflictions, his chief anxiety is, will God be glorified and will his honor be increased by it? If it be so, says he, although I be but as smoking flax, yet if the sun is not dimmed, I will rejoice. And though I be a bruised reed, if the pillars of the temple are unbroken, what matters it that my need is my reed is bruised? He finds it sufficient consolation. Listen to this. He finds it sufficient consolation in the midst of all the breaking in pieces which he endures. Breaking in pieces. You're going to go through that. It's a part of your. That's a part of your future. It's a part of my future. Breaking. You will feel broken in pieces. What's the word of encouragement for someone broken in pieces? He finds it sufficient consolation in the midst of all the breaking in pieces which he endures to think that Christ's throne stands fast and firm and that though the earth hath rocked beneath his feet, yet Christ stands on a rock which never can be moved. Amidst such tumult and diverse rushings, to and fro of troubling thoughts, our souls have returned to the darling object of our desires. And we have found it no small consolation after all to say, it matters not what shall become of us. God hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So, as the kids say today, I don't know who needs to hear this, but you are not the star of the story, and that is exceedingly good news. God is stitching together everything in your life to make the one point He loves to make over and over and over again, and that is, Jesus is the hero, and His name will be exalted. Can I just pray for us for a moment?
Lord, through your Holy Spirit, would you, as I pray you have already done, work this truth deep into our hearts. Use it to to humble us. Lord, use it to convict us of sin. Uh, If we need to feel utterly self-centered and selfish so that we can be released of that, Lord, do that. But ultimately, Lord, would you use these words, Jesus is the point, Jesus is the star of the story, would you use these words as the encouragement that we need? There's so many different ways this could affect a person, but it is good medicine in every one of those ways. We, we love you, Lord. We trust that you'll do this for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.